The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. I am Bill Donahue. I'm taking you through the first hour on this Sunday night. It is the 16th day of May in 2021. We have our engineer, Brian Graves, across the way as always. It's great to be back with you again this week. Up first... We're going to talk to the first designated hitter in Major League Baseball history, Ron Bloomberg. He's got a new book out about his good friend Thurman Munson. We're going to talk to him about that. In the second half, we'll welcome in the co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. Phil Sklar is going to join us. Everybody loves bobbleheads, right? Well, ex- except my wife, maybe. So just sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy Sports Talk New York on WGBB. As always, we got some great sports memories up ahead tonight. Social media, we're out there on Facebook. It's called w- w- WGBB, Sports Talk New York. That's where it's at, so you'll find so much information there. Give us a look and give us a like. We're on LinkedIn. We're on Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow me on Twitter at B Donahue, D O N O H U E, WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't fret none because they're all out there on the website and you can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, we remember him as a Yankee and he was, of course, the first designated hitter in Major League Baseball history. He has a new book out from our friends at Triumph Books in Chicago called The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson. It's a real pleasure to welcome back to the show tonight, Ron Bloomberg. Ron, good evening. Bill, it's always wonderful to be able to talk to you. Uh, we've been friends for many, many years, but one thing i got to say. Go ahead. Where is my bobblehead? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have, back in our days, only type of bobblehead we had was when we got released. Yeah. Our head started going up and down. Yeah, right. That I know, was, Ron. That was the only bobblehead that we actually had. But no, it's wonderful to be able to talk to you, and I'm so happy to talk to, uh, uh, Yankee fans, Met fans, baseball fans, but any type of fans. But, you know, I, I do have a book that came out 30 days ago. Right. And, uh, uh, it's, it's really amazing. We have done extremely, extremely well. Uh, I looked a little while ago. We're number, uh, two on Amazon still. Uh, we're, we're number one for Amazon twice mm-hmm. in the last, uh, three weeks. So it's, it's doing extremely, extremely well. I'm very, very happy. Uh, it's, it's a great book. It's a great read. And, uh, Hopefully, uh, people will get the book. Right, exactly, Ron. We're going to talk to you about that in a bit. I want to get the preliminaries out of the way first. I want to ask you, growing up down there in Georgia, who were your boyhood teams and idols when you were a kid? Well, it's very, very simple. You know, uh, being from the South, being from Atlanta, Atlanta uh, was not the biggest baseball town in the world. Right. Uh, back when I was growing up, uh, 
it was mostly uh, SEC football, of course. And, you know, you got the Georgia Bulldogs, you got the Mississippi uh, teams, Alabama, Tennessee teams. So, you know, football was extremely big. So when I got a little bit older, the Milwaukee uh, 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 Braves came down to Atlanta, and then they called it, of course, the Atlanta Braves. And it got very, very big. Uh, baseball became extremely popular. But, of course, me, uh, to be able to watch games, uh, the only games that we actually watched when I was growing up was the uh, uh, game of the week, always, right. yeah. uh, with Pee Wee Reese and uh, Dizzy Dean. And Mickey Mantle was, of course, my major, major hero. And rightfully so. And, and I'm sure that there's a list a mile long of people listening to us that can say the same thing, Ron. Now, I, I had read that they named the sandwich after you at the stage deli. Do, do you remember what was on that sandwich, Ron? Oh, of course. How can I uh, miss it? <laughs> but unfortunately, you know, the, the delis have, uh, uh, they, they have uh, come and gone. They've gone and, by the uh, wayside, right? five years, the stage deli went out of business. About three, four years ago, but on that sandwich, and they had it for about, oh, when I first played up there, they had this uh, sandwich. And then when I started doing a lot of stuff with the Yankees uh, at the stadium, uh, I went down there quite a bit with uh, a lot of my, uh, uh, you know, older teammates, and, mm-hmm. and then they finally got the uh, sandwich uh, named after me again. It was pastrami, corned beef. And I would hate to tell you what's on it. It's chopped liver wow. that I do not like. No, and, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that didn't sound too good. But what <laughs> I always did was I got the pastrami, corned beef, uh, the uh, uh, the Jewish uh, yellow mustard and half sours and the uh, Dr. Browns and the potato salad and coleslaw. I sat down and, and you just could put a feed bag over my head to eat. It was so good. And then you followed up with a nice black and white, right, Ron? Oh, no, 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 I didn't like the black and white. Oh! Uh, I, no, 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 what I usually would get is, I would usually get the uh, 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 banana cream pie. Okay. Or the coconut cream pie. Or what I get, I would get a uh, big piece of, uh, uh, I wasn't really big on cheesecake, but uh, I love the red velvet and the uh, carrot cake. Uh, wow. That was my favorite. You know, the greatest part of walking into the delis, as soon as you walk in there, you know, you, you gravitate towards those desserts that are going around on those spinning wheels as soon as you <laughs> walk in, and you say, i got to have that. And then they bring you the half a piece of uh, uh, cake and put it in your plate, and everybody stares at you, and they think you're going to give it to the whole table. But when you eat it yourself, uh, they really have their uh, mouth open. Nah, that's exactly right. It gives me a heart attack just thinking about it, Ron, I'll tell you. <laughs> what, what great stuff. Now, you were quite a basketball player. You actually had Coach Wooden come to meet you in person. Uh, yes, I did, Bill. And uh, I, I signed with the Yankees in '67, but I signed with what they call a blood of intent uh, to play basketball at UCLA. And that was a time that Jabbar was there and Henry Bibby was there, and oh, yeah. you know all those guys. And uh, 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 John Wooden came down when I was in the 11th grade, I signed what they call a, a letter of, of intent. Uh, that means is if you do not, uh, uh, you cannot sign with any other uh, basketball team. Uh, 
uh, you, you basically committed yourself. It's not like nowadays uh, the, you get these recruits, they go to one college, they uh, commit, then they go to another college, and next week they commit. Yeah. So, you know, back then it was a little bit tougher. And then uh, in uh, uh, my final year in 67, uh, I signed a football scholarship to uh, University of Alabama to play football for Bear Bryant. Wow. But uh, uh, I was very, very lucky in that year. Uh, the Yankees were scouting. Well, they scouted me when I was in the ninth grade, basically. And I knew there was I, I was high up on their list. But, you know, when you're in the ninth grade, anything can happen to you. But I got better and better and better, and I got very, very lucky and got to play with the New York Yankees. Well, I got drafted by the New York Yankees, and that was a no-brainer for me. And uh, when you have, like, uh, uh, 10 million Jews in uh, uh, New York City, mm-hmm. and I'm a Southern Jew, I wanted to come up where my people were. And, and uh, uh, that was very, very easy to sign on the dotted line with the New York Yankees. And I was very, very proud and very honored to be able to put that Yankee pinstripes on and and play in Yankee Stadium and play in, the, in front of the greatest fans in the world. And that you did, Ron. And now you, you started hitting the ball real well, and I'll use the cliche right off the bat. Is there anybody who mentored you or coached you with the Yankees that had an influence on you early on? I really don't think so. You know, okay. back if, you know what, when you sign professionally, you really don't have a guy that really mentor you. Uh, but really, I would tell you right now, my two, uh, uh, well, my closest friend when I uh, came to New York was Elston Howard. And uh, Ellie and I hit it off extremely well. Uh, Ellie was the first black uh, uh, athlete, uh, Yankee, and I was the first Jew to play uh, uh, for the Yankees. So we had a lot in common. We did a lot of stuff together. Uh, to this day, Orlean, uh, uh, his wife and Cheryl, his daughter, are extremely close. To, uh, they live up in Teaneck, and uh, I get to see them at Old Timers Day. And but no, Ellie uh, uh, was a dear, 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 dear friend. He was like a brother to me, and uh, uh, I guess he mentored me an awful lot. Where he took me under his wing, and and uh, the only thing uh, was bad about Ellie was whenever I. We went out to lunch together, and the bill came. He was always in the bathroom and always had to wind up paying. So it was okay. You know, back then we made like $4 a a day on meal money. So uh, we couldn't go to these expensive places. So, uh, but no, but I would tell you that Ellie was probably uh, one of my closest uh, uh, compadres uh, on the New York Yankees. There you go, folks. The great Elston Howard, number 32. That number is retired by the New York Yankees. Now, I want to ask you, Ron, you had a, a real quick bat, tremendous power. You should have played every day, but Ralph Howe chose to platoon you. Now, how did you feel about that? Well, of course you didn't like it. You know, when you're a professional athlete, uh, you know, you, you want to play every single day. And I, I think that uh, I uh, earned that position to play every single day. But unfortunately... What got me into a situation like this was uh, my last year, well, my first year when I played at Syracuse, I was uh, 19 years old. And when I got to play at Syracuse, Frank Verdi was the manager. And back then you had one-year contracts. And when you have one-year contracts, if you're a ball player, you better uh, perform. Uh, if you are a manager, you better perform. If you don't do well, 
you know, Saranata, you're gone. Right. And uh, Frank Verdi had a real good team. And uh, back then, uh, he had mostly uh, ex-New uh, uh, York Yankees and ex-major uh, uh, leaguers that actually was on that team. And I'm the youngest guy, and I guess the average age on that team was probably 27, 28, and I'm 19 years old. And uh, unfortunately, we had a lot of players that got sent down uh, from the Yankees down to Syracuse, and they platooned me because, I mean, you know, I mean, he, he they unfortunately wasn't looking at me as, you know, I'm going to uh, 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 build up uh, uh, this uh, prospect down here, even though that I was in a more draft pick. And uh, unfortunately, I got caught in the shuffle, and when I got called up to the big leagues, uh, you know, they, you know, they really didn't say I could not hit left-handers, but basically they platooned me. Why? You know, I mean, if, if you look at my batting average uh, against left-handers, somebody was telling me I really didn't know was like around about 270 or something. And up uh, against right-handers, uh, uh, my lifetime uh, average, I think, is 315, 317 mm-hmm. against right-handers. But, you know, hey. Uh, you know, back then, when you have one-year contract, you can't say play me or trade me. You know, if, if they'll get rid of you. Sure. And if you get sent down to the minor leagues uh, from the big leagues, you have Bill. You, you, you really have a hard time to come back to the big leagues. So, you know, I didn't want to make a big fuss. You know, hey, I, I no. did what I had to do. Uh, they platooned me. Uh, to this day, everybody says, "How in the world can they do that?" Da da da, like that. They did it, and uh, I played. And, you know, I played with, uh, you know, some great ball players, some great managers, but unfortunately, uh, it happened. Yeah. And that it did, Ron. We're speaking with Ron Bloomberg tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now we have to talk about the designated hitter. Now that happened on April 6th, 1973 at Fenway Park in Boston. You're facing the great Louis Tiant, Ron. What happens during that at bat? The historic at bat that uh, you were the first designated hitter. Well, Bill, I screwed up the game pretty good in '73, <laughs> and and even to this day, it's 48 years, and uh, I can't believe that Major League Baseball cannot still make a decision, and uh, the National League uh, has adopted it yet. Right? Uh, they have these other crazy rules that you start a guy on second base with the score tied in extra innings, and then they have. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you can't slide in the second base. You can't slide in the third. You can't hit the catcher. And you got all these crazy rules. And now, you know, all of a sudden, you know, uh, uh, in 73 when I played, I never thought, to be honest with you, that the DH was going to be in existence long enough to even uh, uh, even count. I thought it was going to last a year. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, I thought it was a big glorified uh, pinch hitter. And that's what it was to me. Because nobody had any idea what it was. You know, you get up to bat, you go hit, and then you find yourself something to do for three innings, and then you go hit again. And then it's the same thing. So it wasn't an easy position uh, to really uh, uh, acclimate yourself to. It was tough. And I had a hard time at first, but the good part about it was uh, the first day uh, I became a, a DH, you know, uh, up in Boston, it was freezing down there. We we left Fort Lauderdale with 90 degrees, come up to uh, uh, Fenway, and about 30-something degrees. It's freezing up there. So 
uh, Elson Howard told me, go into the clubhouse. Oh, I went in the clubhouse, and uh, uh, the good part about it, if you read my book, the first chapter about uh, eating devil eggs, uh, waiting for me to get at bat. And uh, so, I mean, I ate, listened to the game, and got up to bat, and then went back into the clubhouse, ate some more, and got a base hit, and I kept on doing it back and forth. I said, how in the world can you beat this? Yeah, I mean, you warm, you warm, you eat, you hit, you go back, uh, you know, you stay warm. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, but, but no, you know, it's, it's 48 years. Uh, I think the DH is unbelievable. I think it's great. You got Edgar Martinez, uh, was the first guy to, uh, of course, uh, got into the Hall of Fame and David Ortez will be the second guy. It's a great position and, uh, it'll be universal next year. And you were number one, Ron, that's for sure. Now, previously when we had John, we spoke about Designated Hebrew, your book. Now in 20, it's 2021, Triumph publishes The Captain and Me, uh, your second book, subtitled On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson. Uh, beautiful introduction written by Diana Munson. And tell us a little bit about your relationship with Thurman. Well, you know, let me tell you something how I got this book started. Sure. Uh, I was down in, uh, I've asked many, well, Thurman was my brother. Thurman and I roomed together close to five years. And, you know, I signed in 67 as a number one draft pick. He signed in 68 as a Yankee number one draft pick. We got to meet down in uh, spring training in 69. Uh, we became very, very close friends. And uh, we just hit it off. Here's a guy, I'm a Jew from the South. Here's a guy, a blue-collar guy from the Midwest, Canton, Ohio, and we just hit it off. We did so many things together. We went out to dinner. We went out to lunch. We played golf. We went fishing. Uh, our spring training was down in uh, Fort Lauderdale. I took him to all the delis in uh, 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 Miami. He loved it. <laughs> he never knew, had any idea what matzo ball soup or pastrami and corned beef was. And then when I got to play with him, uh, he took me to his fancy place, uh, to White Castle. And that was a big place up in the Midwest. So we we enjoyed each other very, very much. And and how I really, really got this thing started was uh, down at Yankee Fantasy Camp, and Diana Munson was down there. And I asked Marty Appel, who Marty wrote an unbelievable uh, book about Thurman, and, and it, right. it was a, one of the best of the best. And Marty is an unbelievable writer. He should be in the Hall of Fame as a writer. Yes. And... Uh, uh, Everybody that has written books about uh, Thurman wanted Diana to be the uh, uh, write the forward of the book. And uh, I'm very, very close with her. She's down in uh, uh, fantasy camp. I went up to her. I said, Diana, I just thought about it. When I, I saw her, I said, Diana, I'm going to ask you a question. And she said, what? I said, and she said, I know, you want to write a book about Thurman, and I, you want me to do the forward of the book. And she looked at me, she said, absolutely, only for you. Wow. And she said, you know, Thurman loved you, I loved you, and I know you would make this right. And she started crying, and she hugged me, and she said, you know, you're the only guy that I would give this to because everybody has asked about uh, to do the forward of the book. She's a wonderful lady. Uh, uh, people, uh, everybody reads baseball books, and they get tired of it because it's just stats. This guy hit against this and that and whatever. But this book, I don't know if you ever remember the movie Bang the Drum Slowly. Of course. It's exactly sure. like that. 
Yeah. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, a guy has cancer and you had a pitcher who was the, uh, top pitcher on the team and, uh, uh, you know, and, and he took care of him. Like when I was injured, uh, two years in a row, 76, 77, Thurman took care of me. It's exactly the same way. Thurman deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, number one. Number two, he's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful human being off the field. But when he played, he was dirty, he was grumpy, he hated writers, he just played very, 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 very hard. He certainly did. We're speaking with Ron Bloomberg tonight on the program. How did the loss of Thurman affect that ball club run? Oh, uh, you know, you, 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 you lose a brother. Yeah. Uh, it's like you lose your mom and dad. And, you know, I mean, it was, you know, especially during the season. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, here's a guy that carried the team for, you know, he played for 10 years. And as soon as he signed that contract and as soon as he went down to spring training, uh, Thurman had that it factor. Uh, Thurman had that leadership ability. Uh, you know, Thurman didn't look like a, 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 a ball player if, if you look at him. Because he was short, a little bit stumpy, and whatever. But this guy was an unbelievable great athlete. This guy could run with the best of them. Uh, this guy had the quickest release of any catcher I've ever seen. He was the smartest catcher I have ever played with or against when I was with the White Sox. He was a catcher uh, with the Yankees. Uh, uh, I knew uh, he's, he's a computer. You know, you talk about all these analytics with all these uh, uh, teams now. He was the Atlanta, uh, he was the, uh, analytics of, uh, uh, our team. We didn't need all these computers and all these, uh, guys who, uh, graduate from Ivy League colleges. This guy is, uh, this guy was a computer behind the plate. This guy knew exactly, exactly each and every player, each and every pitch this guy can, uh, cannot hit and each and every, uh, 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 pitch that needs to be pitched at that certain uh, time. He was an unbelievable catcher. He was an unbelievable leader. He was just an all-around great, great player. And you'll read that in the book, uh, Ron Bloomberg's new book about Thurman Munson, folks. You will actually see evidence, the, the value that a player like Thurman Munson can add uh, to a ball club just through his leadership and through sheer baseball intellect, as, as Ron just mentioned, he knew every hitter. He knew the game in and out. That was Thurman Munson. I, I don't want to knock a 2020 Hall of Famer, uh, Ron, but his stats are similar and maybe a little better than Ted Simmons. Well, you know, but Ted Simmons was, uh, uh, I got drafted uh, the same year as Ted. Uh, to be honest with you, uh, I played against Ted uh, uh, for a few years. I really never met him. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Thurman, the, the re- basically, Bill, the, the reason why uh, he did not get a lot of love was because he was very, very difficult to writers yeah. and uh, uh, to the media. And, but that's who he was. Right. And when he put that uniform on, I mean, he went out there to win. He went out there. He, he battled. Uh, he, he was a guy that, you know, uh, uh, when he first signed, CBS owned the team. And then George came in. And, you know, you had two different types of ownership. You had one, uh, CBS cared less about the Yankees. And then you had George, 
loved and, and he loved and uh, died the Yankees. Right. And you know, and, yeah. and Thurman was the leader of that team. Uh, Thurman had the, uh, uh, you know, just just the uh, uh, God. What can I say? What kind of word is it? He had the respect of each and every player on that team. They knew when he said something, they did it because I mean he was our leader. He was a guy that if, if when we went out in battle, he was a guy that led us on. He was a guy people don't realize it's just not one player that makes a team. You know, to, to be a good, great team, you got to have a great catcher. Okay, you got to have a great shortstop. You got to have a great center fielder. You have a, have a great second baseman. You got to be great up the middle. Mm-hmm. But here's a guy that took a pitching staff that was a good pitching staff to make it a great pitching staff. And, uh, and when he became the leader, well, he, he was always a leader, but when he actually became the captain of the team, he was always the captain. And the first day I saw him, and you knew right off the bat he was going to lead us. And that's why he was so good. I just want you to tell the folks, we have about a minute left, Ron. You have a very strong online presence these days. You're on Facebook. You're on Twitter. You have your own website. Just fill the folks in quickly about that, Ron. I had never done this before. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, I got involved with it. And it's the greatest thing I have ever done before in my whole life. Both of my kids are doctors. And they always told me, you know, you got to get involved in it. I had no idea. I don't even know how to type. <laughs> I don't. Even, I still got my flip phone. And I still got my rotary phone. And I still got my calculator. But they taught me how to do this. I got some people to help me to do this. And it's wonderful. I got close to, after a year, almost about forty, about 42,000 people that actually got involved with me, uh, with the likes and all these other groups and stuff like that. But they, you know, I love it. You know, I, I make friends. I love, I, I love fans. And, I, you know, I love baseball and I love people. You know, I, I, I love the Yankee fans. And, you know, I just, I just love people to be involved with. And that's one reason why when my book came out, I was so extremely happy because it's doing great. People love it. And uh, that's why it's number one. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, Bill, to be honest with you, it's a, I would tell you, it's a really a great read. It's a great book. People, you've got to go out and get the book because you'll love it. I promise to you, you'll love the book. That That's exactly true, folks. Ron Bloomberg, it's been a real pleasure. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend some of it with us up here in New York. The book again, folks, it's from our great friends out of Triumph in Chicago. It's titled The Captain and Me, On and Off the Field with Thurman Munson. All the best to you, Ron, and thanks again. Bill, thank you very much. It's great to always talk to you. I'm not going to write another book. The next uh, time I, I, I speak to you, Hope to see you a Yankee uh, old Thomas say, or if you need me for anything, I'm here for you. Uh, like I told you before, you're great. I love you. Looking forward to talking to you soon. Thanks again. That's Ron Bloomberg, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll speak with Phil Sklar. He's the co-founder and CEO of the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. So stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. 
Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. We are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB from beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island, New York. I have to tell you, folks, I visited City Field this week for... Matt Harvey Day, I thought it worked out well. The The fans gave him a nice ovation, but the Mets sent him packing uh, after giving up seven runs. Then, uh, in typical Mets fashion this week, everybody was watching the Major League debut of Jared Kelenic. He's the guy who was sent to the Mariners for uh, Diaz and Robinson Cano. Hits a two-run bomb for his first Major League hit, doubles in. Two more runs next time up. Does the same in the third. Uh, I'm kind of concerned this is going to be an obsession now. The Kellenic watch, like we all watch Stephen Matz uh, killing it for the Blue Jays. Uh, it's just typical Mets stuff, and uh, it, it's very unhealthy, I know, but that's what makes us Mets fans, folks. Happier things. Let's keep the memories rolling along here. Let's see our next guest. Yes, he's prior to founding the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. He was a corporate guy, and we're going to find out, besides his love of bobbleheads, what led him to the mecca of bobbleheadery. Let's call it that. Let's have some fun. Welcome in Phil Sklar. Phil, good evening. Hey, good evening, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you, Phil. Now, I want to ask you where you're from and who did you root for and who did you root for now? Yeah, so I'm originally from Rockford, Illinois. Okay. Uh, so my uh, yeah, my teams are the Cubs uh for uh obviously the Cubs for baseball, uh the Bears for football and I've stayed true to both of them. Actually was more of a Bucks fan growing up and now I'm in Milwaukee, but uh, you couldn't get Bulls tickets because of the Michael Jordan era. Right. I mean, we went to maybe one Bulls game a year, but we'd go to four or five Bucks games a year and so sort of stuck with the Bucks. Nice. Okay. Now, as I said, you were a success in corporate life. Uh, you were doing well. Now, how did this lead to, to the bobble mania that you're involved in? Yeah, so I was uh, climbing the corporate ladder but decided to take a jump off that ladder when uh, nice. you know, me, and the, me and the other co-founder had a bobble collect, bobblehead collection that started in about 2003. And in about 2013, it grew out of control. You know, we were yeah. traveling to the different baseball stadiums, uh, coast to coast. Our goal was to go to all of them. We still have uh, two left, and we'd pick up bobbleheads. I remember going to a uh, game at city, the new city field and uh, picked up a bobblehead. We didn't even know it was a bobblehead day. It was a makeup, and we got there a little late and had to ask uh, some people and finally got one before we left. And, nice. Uh, that collection, yeah, was going pretty crazy. We had about 3,000, and then we also started to produce bobbleheads, so... Uh, combine those two ideas to make the only museum in the world dedicated to bobbleheads. I'm glad you got one at City Field, Phil, because the, they're serious about the bobbleheads here. I mean, they're they're, they're lining up uh, at nine o'clock in the morning for these things, and uh, no matter what the weather, and and uh, 
They'll kill you for one if you <laughs> if they have to. Now, we had to ask a lot of people to get one. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Uh, I believe it. Now let's talk a little bit about the history of bobbleheads. Yeah, so they actually date back a lot uh, farther than most people think. Uh, there's a painting of Queen Charlotte in her dressing room at Buckingham Palace, and she has two figurines behind her. And um, they were sort of decorative uh, figurines from the Asia Pacific region, and. Uh, their heads actually bobble. They're actually still in the Buckingham Palace uh, collection, and similar bobbleheads have recently sold for as high as uh, close to $40,000 for the pair. Uh, but then wow. they became popular for sports in the 19, really 1960. Uh, a company actually headquartered in Buffalo uh, uh, really kicked off. They were the uh, vendors that did a lot of the concessions at arenas and stadiums across the country, and they uh, introduced the bobblehead and fans bought them and enjoyed them and kids played with them and broke them and uh, those are the sort of generic uh, vintage looking bobbleheads that many people are still familiar with. Yeah, I'd give them to my nephew, Phil, and he, invariably he'd pull the head off as I'm sure most <laughs> most kids yeah. do. And I, I remember uh, in the old days the big head bobbleheads with the uh, sort of look like a kid and uh, I think they were made out of uh, plaster, and uh, th- those were the original ones. Yeah, those are the ones from 1960. Right. Uh, and they made them for several years after that uh, in similar fashion. But, yeah, there was uh, that initial series was really popular, and then they started to make some mascots. So, you know, like Mr. Matt uh, might have been made, or, you know, the cub- Cubby Bear, even mm-hmm. though they didn't have an actual mascot at the time. Um, and, the, you know, the Cardinals, they made a Cardinal and yeah, those some of those are worth you know hundreds and even thousands uh, of dollars these right. days. Right. We're speaking with Phil Sklar from the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. Now, the museum itself, Phil, whose idea was that, and how did it begin? Yeah, so I would say uh, you know it was sort of a collaboration between Brad and I. Um, you know, the the light bulb going on was probably came to me during a, a drive. Uh, when I was I started to commute for work, uh, commute for us, you know, it was like 40 minutes, not not anything too long. But I used to have a, you know, before that had about a five or ten minute drive, and so yeah, I was, you know, sort of brainstorming what can we do with this, you know, bobblehead thing. We had a lot of ideas for new bobbleheads, and we had, as I mentioned, the collection growing out of control. And we're like, oh, why not the museum dedicated to bobbleheads? There's museums for spam and mustard and, you know, <laughs> Pez, the other different things. There's and, a yeah. Pez museum in Connecticut yeah. I know that I want to go to. <laughs> yeah, and it was, you know, one of those things we had been across the country. So, you know, we had been to some of the more unique museums and a lot of the mainstream museums like the Baseball Hall of Fame in Cooperstown and mm-hmm. the Rock and Roll Museum in Cleveland. But we said, hey, you know, let's uh, look into this. And so we did did our research we didn't quit the you know the corporate jobs immediately but we did you know several months you know six or seven months of market research and testing out some things and decided hey let's uh, let's run with this we have a few bobbleheads in the works and uh, i think we can make this a go and that you did now what ballpark is it phil that has the huge collection that's on display where is that i forget where it where it is yeah, so that's the Miami Marlins. Oh, okay. uh, we actually visited right. that before. You know, we had no clue that we were going to open, and we didn't even know that the museum was there. We went there, I think, the second year it was open, but we walked in and were like, oh, my gosh, look at all these bobbleheads. Yeah. Uh, but, 
Yeah, they have about, for comparison's sake, they have about 800 bobbleheads in that display. Um, we have about 6,500 uh, at the museum. And there you go, folks. So the uh, Hall of Fame and Museum is indeed the largest collection. Uh, where do the bobbleheads in the museum come from, Phil? Yeah, so they come from all over the place. So we have our personal collection that you know we started with, right? Uh, that's incorporated in there. That's now all of them aren't even at the museum. Uh, we have now close to eleven thousand unique ones. So we, we do a lot of rotating. We say, you know, you don't need to see twenty-five Barry Bonds bobbleheads. We pick, you know, the three or four, <laughs> three or four best ones. But mm-hmm. um, it comes from donations from individuals and teams across the country. We've had you know hundreds of different teams. Uh, send them in. Actually, not just the country, but the world. And we've had, you know, uh, Australian football uh, teams send it in, and you know, rugby, and all over the place. Um, and then, yeah, individuals. We've had people send in one, and we've had a collection as large as nearly 1,500 come from a gentleman in Cleveland who actually uh, was a huge collector himself and got a diagno- uh, diagnosis of can- terminal cancer and. He knew about the museum and wanted the bobbleheads to be on display for people to enjoy, and we have a great plaque dedicated to him, and actually his story was featured on uh, CNN and ESPN, so it was great. Uh, he was you know, around when he was able to see that and uh, get a lot of recognition, so that was something that, that was really uh, touching, and people can read more about him at the museum in one of the displays as well. Now, when there's a stadium giveaway, uh, Phil, and for folks uh, uninitiated, SGA is the way th- they're listed on places like eBay, meaning stadium giveaway, bobbleheads that you'll go to the ballpark and obtain that way if you're one of the first uh, however many uh, in attendance. Do the teams automatically send you a bobblehead, or do you have to request one, or it's just by chance that you'll get one from a stadium giveaway? Yeah, so it's a little bit of both. Some okay. teams, you know, they'll send us at the end of the season, you know, they're one of every bobblehead they did, or, you know, they'll, some teams even send them throughout the year. Um, other teams might just send ones that they like the best, so if they had a, a really popular one or something that was a fan favorite, they'll send them in, and then other teams, you know, especially if we don't have many other bobbleheads, uh, we'll, you know, reach out to them and see if they'll send them. And most times the teams are really receptive to that and enjoy it. But then sometimes we'll just have a fan, you know, come from Seattle and bring a box of, you know, 20 or 30 Mariners bobbleheads because they're a season ticket holder. And, you know, a lot of people, families of four might get four bobbleheads at every game and, you know, they might only want one or two of those. Right. That's a good point. Now, the favorites. What are some of the favorites in the museum? Uh, yours personally and the fans. Which ones do, do you enjoy and which ones do the fans enjoy seeing? Yeah, so I guess I'll start with the fans. Uh, we have a, a life-size bobblehead of our of sort of that vintage uh, face boys from the 60s uh, that has our logos, and people love getting their picture with that one and seeing the head bobble. It's head <laughs> bobbles, uh pretty wildly at times so that's a lot of fun people love seeing the old ones uh both sports and non-sports so some of the you know very the first sports bobbleheads from the 60s uh also the Beatles set from 1964 is a fan favorite uh and then for some reason gritty puts a smile on a lot of people's faces seeing you know 30 different gritty bobbleheads uh he's only a few years old but um, people, whether they're from you know the East Coast, West Coast, North or South, they they all know about Gritty from social media and seem to really enjoy Gritty's bobbleheads. 
so from personally, uh, my favorite is uh, Michael Pohl, who's a manager for the Milwaukee Panthers sports teams and also a big super fan in the area that a lot of people know. And he was the first bobblehead that we produced. Uh, we wanted to raise money for Special Olympics and honor him and had a great experience with that. So he his bobblehead sort of kicked off the, uh, the idea, I guess. We might not be where we are today if it wasn't for his bobblehead. Uh, and then... You know, I, I also love the old ones. They have a lot of character and history to them. And, uh, you know, we're adding new bobbleheads all the time. So, um, you know, some of the ones that we've acquired more recently and are putting out include some of the old hockey ones. and um, Just really a wide variety, you know, sports and non-sports alike. Interesting. Speaking with Phil Sklar from the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum tonight on Sports Talk New York. How about value, Phil? I mean... You can go on eBay and you can uh, purchase uh, a much-in-demand bobblehead. Uh, like I remember, the uh, the Mets gave away a Noah Syndergaard as Thor bobblehead, and that the lines for that were ridiculous. How about most valuable that you have in the museum? Yeah, we have several that are in the thousands. We have a couple that are sort of one of a kind, uh, original cast iron mold from the 1960 uh, bobblehead series that's believed to be one of a kind so we don't even know you know what that might fetch have sold uh, the most valuable bobblehead ever sold actually is the new york yankees of that 1960 version but it was an oversized one so a few stores in new york uh, area likely had that those in their uh, store windows to get people's attention uh, about 14 inches tall and one sold uh, two years ago now for about $89,000. So if somebody has one of those uh, laying around, they might want to get it appraised or uh, shoot us an email and we can uh, help you out. But definitely uh, there can be some value. Now, because of the pandemic last year, a lot of the giveaways or all of the giveaways were uh, postponed by the teams. I know especially Major League Baseball, the Mets had several that they uh, were supposed to give away. They they gave away a, a Pete Alonso. Uh, Rookie of the Year and a Jacob DeGrom two-time Cy Young Award bobblehead. They ended up giving them to season ticket holders. Uh, What do you find, Phil, that most of the teams did with this inventory, this valuable stuff? What did they do with it? (laughs) Yeah, so it definitely was the the oddest year for for bobblehead since uh, the bobblehead giveaway was invented in 1999. Uh, The Giants and San Francisco were actually the first team to have a bobblehead giveaway, and it was of Willie Mays. But, you know, ever since that one, bobbleheads were the most popular promotion, uh, have been the popular, most popular promotion at stadiums across the country for every single sport. Mm-hmm. And last year, yeah, everything uh, sort of paused. Most teams had at least the earlier to mid-season bobbleheads already in transit or in hand. Um, so, you know, they were sort of stuck with them. And most teams, yeah, waited and are giving them away this year. Uh, some teams have split, you know, a bobblehead that might have been given away on one day to two or three or even four days because of limited attendance. Uh, point, some teams, right? I think, are still waiting to see, you know, when they'll be able to have full attendance, which, you know, more teams are, are reaching that mark or, you know, projected to reach that mark soon. And so, yeah, it's uh, really a, an interesting time. There was plenty of bobbleheads of players who no longer are on uh, the team, <laughs> that they, you know, the, the team that did the bobblehead. So, 
you know, some really odd cases there. But and yeah, the minor leagues as well, where there's you know over 120 teams that you know does they had their bobbleheads all planned out. So most of those will be given out this year. Some might even stretch, you know, till next season with limited capacity. You know, at the beginning part of this season, affecting that schedule. And you know, I think we'll see, especially when all arenas are back to to full capacity, even more giveaways than ever, uh, just to get fans back in the arenas and back to the stadiums and you know it's definitely exciting to go back you know to to a stadium and to especially to get a bobblehead i know the mets just recently phil they gave away uh mrs met as wonder woman and that was spread over three days which would have been only one night with the eight uh the eight thousand limit on attendance they were able to do it three nights so as you said there's different ways of, of doing this and different ways they're going to end up distributing them. Now, on your website, what I found is great is you had a list, uh, and it's uh, updated for 2019 now, the uh, actual dates and uh, bobblehead name of uh, the giveaway, and uh, so folks could follow that schedule. And if they want to travel, etc., that, that's a great thing to have on the website. Yeah, it's definitely a resource that a lot of people enjoy. And you can even go in there and type in, you know, if you're looking for Mariano Rivera and mm-hmm. you know, want to see the different uh, bobbleheads that were ever given away of him, they'll all pop up there. Or you can check, you know, Yankees or Mets or you know, uh, Golden State Warriors or really anywhere uh, around and you'll see all the giveaways that that team has had. So it's a fun way for fans even to have a checklist of, you know, whether they're looking, you're looking to get your favorite player or favorite team and collect them all. And, you know, it can sometimes be a treasure hunt. Some of them have become really hard to find. Um, you know, eBay, like you mentioned, is really the best source in the secondary market if you're looking for a bobblehead, um, in particular. And, you know, just has become a really uh, great resource for completing collections. I agree 100%. Now, one group of bobbleheads that I believe you guys did was for the Negro League Museum? Yeah, so yeah, the Negro Leagues last uh, last year celebrated the 100th anniversary, uh, so it was the centennial, and we uh, worked with the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum to develop a series of bobbleheads honoring the top 32 individuals who participated in the Negro Leagues, so everybody from Satchel Page to Josh Gibson, Roy Campanella, and a lot of people who, you know, are big names in the Baseball Hall of Fame, but people may not have heard of. So it was a great way to honor those players and raise awareness and really keep their legacy alive. We got a lot to different schools, and they've used them as educational tools. So really uh, an important mission that the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum in Kansas City is is doing, and we were, you know, really thrilled to partner with them to, to do that. And the series blossomed and we came out with a series of vintage bobbleheads like the ones from the 60s uh, since the negro leagues never had a series like that so the new york black yankees are included there and the new york cubans and uh the kansas city monarchs and so many teams that have had really rich histories and uh just a really unique and fun series to both you know have a collection and also learn some history exactly phil a nice venture uh, certainly, and the folks can see these these uh, great a uh, lot of Hall of Famers like Judy Johnson, as as Phil mentioned, Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, 
and the uniforms are depicted true to life too and uh they're really nice pieces so look that up for sure now what new bobbleheads do you have in the offing phil yes so we're always you know working on new bobbleheads we have uh quite a bit in the pipeline uh we 2020 was sort of the year of the pandemic for you know everybody but we ended up doing a dr fauci bobblehead and bobbleheads of 12 different governors and 35 different essential hero professions but we moved sort of back on the sports and have just a ton coming out uh people can go to our website babbleheadhall.com um some really fun ones that people enjoy is the riding series so we have you know like pete alonzo riding the polar bear as a nickname and just uh, a lot of new ones in that series coming out throughout the uh this year as well um the knucklehead series has a lot of fan favorites that we just added uh the likes of James Harden in his Brooklyn uh, uniform and just uh, a huge selection of different players. And so, yeah, we def- try to stay on the cutting edge. I know you mentioned Kelnick for uh, Seattle, who got away from the Mets. He's actually from yeah. about 30 minutes west of Milwaukee. Uh, so we've been watching him, and he might have his first bobblehead coming out soon. Uh, as well. Well, I hope not. <laughs> I hope not, Phil. <laughs> no, we don't need to give him any more publicity than he already has. We're speaking with <laughs> Phil Sklar tonight from the Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum in Milwaukee. How about the outlook for the future as far as the museum goes, Phil? Yeah, so we actually have been closed because of the pandemic, like a lot of museums and cultural institutions out there. Uh, we're going to be reopening a uh, plan for uh, June 1st, so we're really excited about that. We've added probably 600 or 700 new bobbleheads uh, since we closed for the pandemic and actually added a virtual tour online so people can go to bobbleheadhall.com backslash virtual tour and you can walk around 360 degrees and visit the museum from the comfort of your home. And so that was really nice, giving a chance to people you know, during the pandemic to safely visit the museum even though we were closed. Uh, mm-hmm. But yeah, we're excited to reopen. We have a lot of different exhibits, and we'll be doing some special exhibits and other fun things. Uh, you know, social media, you can also follow us there, and we'll be announcing, you know, new things. But, yeah, the outlook for Bobbleheads is great. Uh, there's so many uh, people looking to get back out once the pandemic, you know, is fully behind us. And I think, you know, teams are going to be eager to get fans back, and Bobbleheads will be one of the ways to to get fans back in the seats and, you know, engaged and excited again. So definitely look out uh, for some of your favorite teams and uh, the promotions that they'll have to to get you back out there. Now, you also uh, do memberships to the museum to uh, get people involved. Yeah, Yeah, you get benefits like an exclusive bobblehead that's only available for members. Uh, We have all kinds. You get your name on a plaque at the museum um, a lot of other benefits like discounts and pre-sale opportunities. So yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. That was one of the ways we tested. We had members in nearly every state before we even opened, which was great to see support from so many people uh, all across the the country. And we have uh, visitors have visited the museum in you know, the first year from all 50 states and 25 different countries. So it's been definitely fun to see uh, the reaction. You know, and people come and see. You know, this the volume of Babblehead is definitely uh, somewhat of an overwhelming experience for a lot of people. That is great. Now, we spoke uh, a little bit about the Negro Leagues uh, Museum, the Hall of Fame Museum that you guys did work with. You also do work in the community. We do, yeah. So we like to have uh, 
you know, bobbleheads where money goes back to organizations that are tied in with the bobbleheads. We've had uh, so many different ones over the years, but uh, continuing to do that. Uh, the Dr. Fauci and Essential Heroes and Governors is our biggest one to date. We've raised over $300,000 and counting uh, for the Protect the Heroes Fund to continue to get PPE to frontline uh, workers. And, you know, we'll continue to do bobbleheads with great causes like the Negro Leagues one where uh, a big chunk goes back to the Negro Leagues Baseball Museum so they can continue their great programming. Uh, but yeah, we put that on the website for any of those special bobbleheads that have a great cause uh, connected to them. And it's a, a fun way for us to, to give back and help others through bobbleheads. That's great. And one thing I want to mention quickly, Phil, is the uh, Bernie Sanders at the inauguration bobblehead. Yes. So that's our most popular bobblehead of 2021. Uh, it's our second best seller of all time. <laughs> Just something that captured people. Yeah. That is yeah. great. Well, Phil Sklar, thank you for being with us tonight and for taking time out of your Sunday night to be with us here in New York. Go to bobbleheadhall.com, folks. A lot of great stuff. Bobbleheads galore. This is the National Bobblehead Hall of Fame and Museum. Thanks again, Phil. Thanks for having me, Bill. Have a great night. You too. That's Phil Sklar, folks. Well, that'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests one more time, Ron Bloomberg and Phil Sklar, my engineer, Brian Graves, as always, and you for joining us. I'll see you next week when I'll welcome in Sean Nealis from the New York Red Bulls, author David Krell, and the return of one of our favorite authors, Tim Wendell. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.